tell you something that you have probably already noticed, but uh, because I'm slow, well, that's not exactly accurate. Uh, you know, there are different kinds of personalities in the world. There are some people who are really feeling oriented, and there are some people who are more thinking oriented. And well, when it comes to things, I'm a little more on the thinking oriented side of life. So I am sometimes less feeling oriented. So I, I but I, I, I figured something out. In the last 18 months, there's this kind of an atmosphere of fear that has settled on our planet, kind of like a heavy, wet blanket. Um, the bad news of death, disease, despair, demonstrations, and civil disobedience have nearly smothered every positive feeling we could have. It's just, ugh. <laughs> so it's honest confession time. If you're tired of all the bad news and fear, please raise your hand. Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, I'm gonna assume you're paralyzed. Which is bad news in and of itself, right? Yeah, I want you to know, uh, okay, dishonest confession time. I am an exhausted encourager. Uh, God wired me to encourage people to, to help them uh, live with faith, hope, love, peace, joy. Uh, I, I, I hate negative stuff. I just, my automatic response is to go, hey, let's pump this thing up. Let's get it going. My encouragement battery is a, not a completely dead, but it's getting really low after 18 months of trying to everybody. Uh, so I know many of you pray for me. So and maybe you've been wondering, how do we pray for the pastor? Pray for my encouragement battery. It needs a boost. It needs a recharge. Okay? So that's how you can pray for me right now. Uh, in our study of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospel of John, in John's record, uh, we've reached the darkest and scariest part of, of the story of the record of Jesus' life. It's, fear, it's a fear-filled atmosphere for sure. And uh, it's very apropos for us. I think there's a message that Jesus wants us to get here. We've been talking about Jesus' statements, uh, where his I am statements, his declarations, where he's used the name that God gave Moses at the burning bush, clear back in the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. Um, that's a whole different sermon. That was fact the first sermon in the series. So if you need help finding out what that was about, uh, we can fill you in on that later. Um, we're in John, we're in the last section of John. In John chapters 13 through 17, uh, he details the, the, the deeds, the dialogues, and the prayers of Jesus uh, on the last evening before his crucifixion. John gives into far more detail about the things that Jesus did and said than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, he gives us details that they don't give us. They give us some details that he doesn't. So between the four of them, we have some idea, a uh, fuller picture of what happened in that evening. Uh, 
John, though, in this whole process, in this whole section, reveals kind of a subtle theme. Uh, Jesus knows what's going on. Sometimes, I, maybe it was just me growing up, and, you know, because I was a little kid. I mean, maybe I just wasn't paying any attention. Maybe I didn't catch this. Jesus knew exactly what was going on. He was not surprised. Uh, he was not caught off guard. Jesus knew what and when and how this whole passion and crucifixion and all was going to come about. In John chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us it was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go back to his father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. I think that verse, John 13, 1, kind of introduces us to everything that's about to happen in the rest of the book. You know, Jesus has shown his disciples, his friends, how much he loves them, but he's about to show them, okay, now, this is what love really is. In verses 3 to 5, John goes on to say, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Now, this is one of the things that we notice about this theme that John has going through these chapters. It's subtle. It only shows up a little bit. But when Jesus, it says, John says, Jesus knows something, and so he acts. And here's what he does. Jesus knows that God has put everything under his power. It's, everything is under his authority. What do human beings do when stuff is under their power and authority? Well, let me tell you what Jesus did. He says... Jesus put, knew that God put all, everything under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew the Father put all things under his power. He was in charge of everything. So he washed his disciples' feet. So we come to chapter 18. That's where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 18. It, this launches the countdown. The, the conversations, the prayers of the last evening are coming to a close because now the arrest is coming and the countdown to the cross is beginning. And it's this chapter begins with a mob tracking Jesus down 
and, and, and asking, will the real Jesus please stand up because we have a warrant for his arrest? Well, it really wasn't quite that legal. We have orders to take him in. That's about as good as it got. They had no warrant. They were just a mob taking him in. John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. When he had finished praying, that John chapter 17 was a long prayer from Jesus. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. This, according to the other Gospels, was a place called Gethsemane. And when he got there, he told his disciples to sit here, sit down, and, and, and to pray for him. And going a little further, Matthew tells us that he fell with his face to the ground, and he said, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he prayed that prayer three times. Take this cup, this suffering that I'm about to go through. Take this. But not my will, your will be done. Back John says, Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus and his disciples often went there. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Because nothing is scarier than a carpenter from Nazareth who left his tools in Nazareth. I mean, I suppose if he has tool belt, he might be scary. He's got a hammer or two. Maybe a nail punch. Like, you know, we have a whole detachment of soldiers to rest an unarmed carpenter and some fishermen. Overkill. I'm sorry. Stop reading between the lines, Mark. Okay. Verse 4. Okay, here, here we come back to this theme that John had. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him. Went out and asked him, who is it you want? Now, we have an advantage over everybody else that was there. We know exactly what Jesus knew. Most of us have read the rest of the story. We know about him being beaten and whipped and flogged and stripped and sped on and mocked and nailed to a cross and killed. We know what Jesus knew. He knew what was about to happen to him. If you knew that was about to happen to you, what would you do? But Jesus says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he replies, I am he. Now this is, this is 
This is, what, this is the last time in the Gospel of John, in this record of Jesus' life, this is the last time Jesus uses that name that God gave to Moses to identify himself. And it's really hard for us to, dis, to translate this into English, because it's literally, I, I am. We, we have, it's three words. In, when Jesus said it, it was only two. But it was I am he. I am the great I am. The same I am that the burning bush. The same I am that met the woman at the well. The same I am, the light of the world. The same I am, the one who will give you water and you will never thirst again. I am the one, the shepherd, the gate. <laughs> I am. I am he. And Judas, it tells us, Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Now hear this, hear this. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. The reaction, look at that reaction. The reaction of those who came to arrest Jesus in response to his assertion that he is the one that they are seeking uh, is based on his assertion, I am the great I am. He declares that I am the man you are seeking, and I am the one you ought to be worshiping. And they fell to the ground. His words caused even his enemies to recoil and fall face down in his presence. This name, I am. Transformed a woman at the well. The very, I, I, I just want to take a moment because I love the very first person he ever said that name to was a woman at the well. The very, the very first person he ever said it to was the very last person that anyone would ever have expected him to say it to. A Samaritan woman who was like even an outcast in her own village. I mean, and for Jewish people, the Samaritans were outcasts, and she was an outcast of the outcast. And she goes, I know there's a Messiah coming, and he's going to tell us everything that we've ever done. And he goes, I am he. That's who's speaking to you. And it changed her, and it changed everybody in her village. They also fell in worship to him, but in their falling, it transformed them into whole, completely different people. Even in this dark hour, however, as Jesus holds this ultimate power and he expresses to his enemies his identity, I am he. And they recoil and fall. 
He displays that he is the great I am. He still holds ultimate power. He, all things are still under his power. They're coming to arrest him. They're about to tie him up and take him away. But he's still the one in charge. I remember thinking the very first time I, I, I really grasped what happened when he said this. I thought, no wonder he's so quiet for the rest of the time. No wonder he says so little. He was afraid he was going to hurt somebody. Have you ever been around, I call them gentle giants. They're these guys that are so big that if they accidentally bump into you, they might break a bone. I know I'm on the bigger side of life, but I mean, these are big people. Huge, like Shaquille O'Neal big. Or maybe even bigger than him. And But they're so gentle because they, they don't... There was a guy in my high school who was like that. He was like seven feet tall. I'm pretty sure the guy weighed 400 pounds of solid meat. And he was just so careful around people because he was afraid. He literally... People would come up, they ask him to go out for football, and he goes, yeah, I might hurt somebody. And the coach was going, that's the whole point. And he's going, no. That's Jesus during the crucifixion, only the whole passion, he's, he's going, I'm not a gentle giant because I'm a huge physical specimen. I have this power that you can't even imagine that I'm controlling. Because I love him. He had ultimate power over his enemies and the powers of darkness because he was the great I am. And in this moment, he decides, I'm going to control this and I'm going to sacrifice. So it tells us in verse 7. Again, he asks them, okay, let's try this one more time, guys. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I, I, you know, see them being a little bit more timid about how they, you know, said it. And Jesus' response is, I told you that I am he. Still use the name. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost. I have lost, no, not lost one of those you gave me. That's one of his, part of one of his prayers to his father. Then verse 10, Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Peter, Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Not the first time Peter got in trouble. Uh, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus touched the man's ear and healed him. Uh, but one of the commentators 
I always thought it was funny. It's obvious that Peter had no idea what he was doing with the sword because he took a swing at a guy and cut off his ear. But apparently, uh, the most accurate translation is that he probably cut off the lobe of his ear. <laughs> it's going to decapitate the guy and all he gets is the lobe of his ear. Okay, I think that's humorous. Sorry. And then what does Jesus do? He reaches over and heals the guy. So I'm sorry. He's always an impulsive guy. I'll fix that. And then the other three Gospels tell us everyone deserted him. Mark goes so far as to tell us that a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus, and when they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. It's an interesting thing. Why, why would that ever be included in the gospel? You would think somebody would, you know, they wanted to go, no, I, I'm the hero of the story. I stayed. No, we all ran. In fact, one of us ran away naked. Most people were pretty sure that that was Mark, the guy who wrote the gospel, doing his own little version of honest confession time. I was so scared, I ran home naked. Hey, Mom, don't look. I'm coming in. No, Mom, seriously, don't look. In this event, we see the average human responses to fear. There are three normal human responses to fear. The first one, and we've seen all of them, by the way, all of them in this atmosphere of fear in the last 18 months. They're just, they're everywhere. The first one, fight. Peter grabs his sword. And Jesus has one more person to heal. So I looked at that, I thought, yeah, that's basically what happens. Every time we start to fight, Jesus has somebody else he's got to heal. When we get scared, we decide we're going to, I'm going to fight. We always fight the wrong thing. We fight people. And somebody gets hurt. And Jesus has to tell us, put the stupid sword away, and now I'm going to fix what you broke. So the normal response, one of the normal responses, the average normal response to fear is fighting. And we don't like it because it makes it look like we're brave. We're not brave. We're just scared. And weaponized. Then there's flight. See, that's what you guys probably thought I was going to start with. Flight. And you see that with all the disciples. Everyone deserted him. There was desertion and denial. And more healing that needed to happen. Desertion, denial reconciliation. He needed to be forgiven and brought back in. 
And then there's one that isn't necessarily uh, seen here, but it's one that we all are aware of living in Michigan. It, it's freeze, or as we often call it, the deer in the headlights syndrome. Right? You know what happens when deer is in suddenly in the headlights? They just stand there until all of a sudden the headlights aren't there. Then what do they do? They're stupid and they run right towards your car. Human beings are like that. We get scared, we just go. Whatever it is that we're scared of runs right over us. Now look at the difference. Jesus does none of these. He doesn't fight. He doesn't flight. Doesn't take it to flight. He doesn't freeze. He defies the fear, and he does what love requires of him. He knows his father has said to him, "Son, I understand you don't want this cup, but." Love requires you to take the cup. So he goes out to meet them and says to them, who are you looking for? Oh, that's me. Here I am. He restrains his power. The second time he introduces himself to the mob so they can carry out their business. He restrains himself during the rest of the entire passion experience. And he interceded for the very disciples that were in the process of running. As he said, you came for me, let them go. Don't bother chasing me. Okay, let the naked guy go. What's he going to do? So how on earth, how can we defy the atmosphere of fear to defy now, how do we defy that atmosphere to do what love requires us? How, how, how can we live motivated by love instead of motivated by fear? How can we do what Jesus did? Um, I think we need to learn to live the way Jesus lived. With, uh, when we live... Not my will, but your will be done. Then we can defy fear and live free. One author put it this way, you don't, don't be misled. Surrendering your will shows anything but timidity or fear. It's one of the most difficult things you'll ever do, yet it can be the most freeing and peaceful acts at the same time. So, when we live, not my will, 
but your will be done. We can defy fear and live free. So, what do we do? We need to stop fighting for our rights. Yeah, you heard me say that. You need to stop fighting for your rights. You need you, you don't need to take flight hoping to leave your troubles out of sight. You, you, please don't freeze. When there's an atmosphere of fear, the last thing anybody needs is a whole bunch of people just standing around going. By all means, drop to your knees. But you said, don't freeze. There's a whole world of difference between freezing and, and dropping to your knees. Because when you drop to your knees, I want to encourage you to surrender to King Jesus. And join the great I am to do what love requires. Live in the Holy Spirit's mighty power. Spread righteousness, peace, and joy across our community and beyond. There's a song about that's called entitled Even the Grave. And there's, these are some words from that. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed upon his knees, Father, will you take this cup from me? Then came the battle cry, victory for you and I. Father, not my will, yours be done. That's the battle cry. Father, not my will. But yours be done. Let's pray.